The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. A nation with guns, but no protection. It's Thursday, February 15th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. This is the part where we ignore the widespread ownership of machine guns to focus on mental health. Only we never do that either. This is the part where we hear it's too soon to talk about guns, maybe after the next mass shooting. Under the laws and rules written mostly by the NRA and the lawmakers elected with NRA money, 17 more people died yesterday at a high school in Broward County in southeastern Florida. That brings to 18 the number of school shootings since the beginning of the year. 18 compared to 7 last year. We're on track to triple the number of school shootings in just a year's time. School shootings now occur at the rate of about one a week if you count the suicides, and we do. In 2013, school shootings numbered 37. In 2014, it was 58. In 2015 and 2017, the number had doubled from 2013. Two-thirds of our nation's school districts now conduct active shooter drills as we accept school shootings as a fact of life. 45 days into 2018, we've had 29 mass shootings. Marco Rubio, one of the senators from the state with the most recent school killing, has received over $3 million from the National Rifle Association. And as long as the NRA is writing the laws, don't expect things to get any better. Case in point. Last year, the Trump-led Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives distributed a memo proposing that the ATF cut a number of gun regulations. We now know it was a lobbyist for the NRA who wrote the original draft of the government's ATF memo and that there was no input from gun control groups. The Brady Center for Gun Violence, named for President Reagan's critically wounded press secretary, had used the Freedom of Information Act to sue the ATF to get hold of the documents used to write that regulation-cutting white paper at the ATF. The white paper was entitled, Guns in America, Options for a New Administration. It's subtitled, Secure Second Amendment Rights, Support for the Firearms Industry, and the violent gun crime fight. This memo is not official policy, but it is a guideline for the ATF. Among other things, the memo proposes allowing the sale of guns across state lines at gun shows, making guns used in crimes more difficult to track. This NRA-written ATF proposal calls for an end to the ban on Russian imports. It proposes ending the scrutiny of gun sales at the Mexican border. And it proposes not shutting down a gun store until its guns have been involved in at least 25 crimes, instead of the current limit of 10. And we now know, thanks to that Brady Center lawsuit, the NRA lawyer not only wrote the original draft of that white paper, but made additions and changes as the paper progressed. It also proposes calling off a review of AK-47s and AR-15s, the guns used in some of our worst mass shootings, including Las Vegas, Sandy Hook, and the one yesterday in Parkland, Florida. The AR-15 is the gun of choice for so-called responsible gun owners and for mass killers. With more on both groups, here's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. In the aftermath of 9-11, imagine if various American Muslim organizations held contests in which the grand prizes were box cutters, the tool-turned-weapon used by terrorist hijackers aboard those four doomed flights. 
Now imagine if a U.S. congressman held not one, but two separate contests like that. The condemnations would be swift and loud. Since the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14th, 2012, gun clubs, firearms retailers, gun rights organizations, and even a former sitting U.S. congressman have all held multiple contests in which the AR-15, Adam Lanza's weapon of choice, was the prize. In fact, Steve Stockman, a congressman from Texas, conducted two AR-15 giveaways. Not only did Stockman deliberately choose the AR-15 due to its high profile during the post-Sandy Hook gun control debate, but he chose the exact same AR-15 manufacturer, Bushmaster, as was the Lanza weapon. The ghoulishness is breathtaking, especially given the sheer number of other available firearms that have little or no association with the most gruesome day on American soil since 9-11, not to mention the numerous other manufacturers of the AR-15. But Stockman chose that one, the Bushmaster AR-15. And due exclusively to gerrymandering, this heartless troll used to have a vote in Congress. Worse yet, roughly 100,000 people entered his contest. On the day of the second of two drawings, Stockman said, quote, An AR-15 muzzle flash is the new torch of liberty. An AR-15 muzzle flash was also the last thing 20 children and six school teachers would ever see. But sure, torch of liberty. Meanwhile, AR-15 sales spiked to record levels as gun enthusiasts line up to buy AR-15s in the months following Sandy Hook. Sure, it was a popular firearm before the massacre, but as new gun control measures were debated earlier that year in response to Sandy Hook, gun dealers were barely able to keep the rifle and its ammunition in stock. Then in April of 2013, the president of Stag Arms, a Connecticut gun manufacturer that produces AR-15s, told CNBC, quote, It's been a very, very busy year for us. Right now we're at about a year's back order. 70,000 rifles at this point. 70,000 from one manufacturer. Think about that. A Charlotte, North Carolina gun shop owner continued, quote, the AR-15 now is probably the number one economic engine in the gun industry, unquote. Every year, 25% of all firearm sales in the U.S. are AR-15s. $1 billion of a $4 billion industry. 4 million AR-15s are in circulation today and more are being sold every day. Meanwhile, another gun maker, Slidefire, released a modified AR-15 that can reportedly act as a fully automatic rifle using belt-fed rounds, and a loophole in the law makes it perfectly legal. The company's marketing manager said, quote, it sprays like a fire hose. That very modification was used in the Las Vegas massacre last year. Given America's thriving gun culture, it'd be naive to think that firearm sales in general would decline after a gut-wrenching tragedy like Sandy Hook. However, following the slaughter of 20 children by a madman brandishing an AR-15, you'd think fewer Americans would want to be associated with it, not more, and not by the tens of thousands. But the fact that AR-15 sales and giveaways actually generated record profits following its use in mass shootings at both Sandy Hook and Aurora underscores the shameless, soulless character of our gun culture, including those who fuel it. By way of full disclosure, I wrote the preceding words, everything I just said about the AR-15, just over four years ago, and nothing has been done. In the wake of the tragedy in Parkland, Florida on Wednesday, we have no choice but to ask how many more bodies, bodies of children, 
in many cases, will pile up before Congress finally acts to rid the world of this AR-15 killing machine. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Americans bought a record number of guns when Barack Obama was elected president, and they kept buying in the four years that followed. When Obama was reelected, gun sales surged again, and they continued to sell in record numbers for another four years. Just before the 2016 election, gun sales surged yet again when it appeared Hillary Clinton would be elected. Some Americans believed, to their cores, that Obama's goal was to take their guns, which he never did or even tried to do. Those same Americans then believed Clinton would take away their guns, even though it was not part of her policy platform. The NRA likes to take credit for the election of Donald Trump, who had, for it, said all the right things in the campaign. The NRA did, after all, donate $30 million to the Trump campaign. The FBI is now reportedly investigating whether Russia used the NRA to filter Russian money to the Trump campaign because using foreign money to influence a U.S. election is illegal. But that's another story. This story is about gun sales. And since Trump's election, America's take-our-guns paranoia is subsiding. American gun racks are already well-stocked. And gun sales are now falling. And that's why gunmaker Remington has filed for bankruptcy. The court restructuring wipes out $700 million in debts as the Chapter 11 process begins. And in case you need a Remington, the company says customers won't notice a thing. Money is tight also at two other gunmakers, Ruger and American Outdoors Brands. But things were worse at Remington, which took a bit of a public relations hit after its Bushmaster AR-15 was used to slaughter 20 elementary school children at Sandy Hook. The head of the Independent Firearms Owners Association says he believes Remington can turn things around. Quoting him, if Democrats make a resurgence this November, gun company stocks will come roaring back with them. America's obsession with guns is one of the hot-button issues that divides this country, and the Russians know it, and they're using it today to fuel the fiery online debate that occurs after every mass shooting. There may be no more painful reminder of how divided our country is than this story from Wisconsin, a longtime Democratic state that went, as other states did, for Donald Trump. One of Wisconsin senators is Democrat Tammy Baldwin, who's now running for a second term. Baldwin is the nation's first openly gay U.S. senator and the first woman Wisconsin ever sent to Washington. Nearly six years ago, she ran against former Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson and beat him. Now she's being challenged by a newcomer, Kevin Nicholson, the most promising of three Republicans running in the primary election there on August 14th. Nicholson's parents are also politically active. And they've each just donated the maximum amount of money allowed by law to their son's opponent, Tammy Baldwin. Between them, Nicholson's parents have donated over $5,000 for their son's opponent's primary campaign. Primary campaign. The law says they can turn around and do it again for the general election, and they probably will. Quoting their Republican son, My parents have a different worldview than I do, and it's not surprising that they would support a candidate like Tammy Baldwin who shares their perspective the parents of a young man who was once the president of College Democrats of America have no comment. But never mind for a moment about the day-to-day -day bickering in this harshly divided nation over some issue or incident or philosophy. There remains one big overriding concern for us all, defending the founding principles of the government that made America great from the very beginning. The institutions of government that protect us from those who would do us harm 
from dictators to mobsters. This week, we heard from Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who decades ago covered a burglary and uncovered the scandal that brought down President Nixon. Quoting their new article, We're here again. A powerful and determined president is squaring off against an independent investigator. Robert Mueller's mission is a comprehensive look at Russian meddling in the 2016 election and any other crimes he uncovers in the process. President Trump insists it's all a witch hunt. He reportedly asked White House counsel to have Mueller fired. No wonder people are making comparisons to the Saturday Night Massacre of 1973, wrote Woodward and Bernstein. The Watergate reporters go on to call what Trump is doing with the Justice Department today, quote, eerily similar to Nixon's Saturday night firings of his attorney general, his deputy attorney general, and the special prosecutor who was investigating him. This time, however, we're watching the firings in slow motion. And it's mysterious and troubling why this president just isn't concerned about Russian hacking, even as it threatens our sacred right to vote. No warnings, no studies, no commissions to investigate or neutralize the threat, and the next crucial election is now just eight or nine months away. And no new sanctions against Russia for the interference that continues today, even though Trump's own National Intelligence Director, Dan Coats, told Congress Tuesday there's no doubt Russia sees this year's midterm elections as another chance to attack, especially since its 2016 attack worked so well. This week, Congress heard intelligence officials warn that Russia is likely to again swamp the U.S. with propaganda, again using bots on social media to cash in on a politically divided America. And when lawmakers asked the heads of all the nation's top intelligence and security agencies if they'd been directed by Trump to stop future Russian interference, their answers ranged from no to hemming and hawing. Trump himself has mocked the idea of Russian interference in the 2016 vote and attacked the public servants who've expressed concern about it. He called members of U.S. intelligence Nazis at one point. Just this week, three sources told CNN Trump still doesn't believe Russia interfered with the 2016 election. Why would he want to? To admit it would only weaken his presidency more than it already is. Trump has also said he believes Vladimir Putin when Putin says Russia didn't meddle, and Trump's attacked the institutions whose aim is to go after any and all interlopers, including Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. CIA Chief Mike Pompeo says the U.S. has the ability to pinpoint those hackers and has the technology to launch its own attack if it gets orders to do so. But under Trump, the nation's security in general isn't shown the kind of concern we were promised in a campaign that focused on Clinton's carelessness with classified information. Well over a hundred White House officials either have no security clearance or just partial clearance. In spite of that, scores of them have access to the most sensitive data operating on what's known as interim clearance. Interim clearances have never been used by so many people in the White House for so long. The eventual firing of alleged wife-beater Rob Porter called attention to all of this. He didn't have clearance, yet every day Porter saw documents he was not cleared to see. And all of this under the supervision of a Marine Corps General Chief of Staff John Kelly, the guy brought in to bring order to a chaotic White House that's been up and running for more than a year now. Senior Advisor Jared Kushner has had access to top-secret data, and it doesn't appear he'll ever be cleared to see that stuff. CNN reports that Kushner, Rob Porter, Ivanka Trump, and over 130 other officials have served in this administration from January 20th, 2017 to November of last year with only interim security clearances. That includes the top White House lawyer, 
Council Don McGahn. Many, including McGahn, are using their interim clearances on a semi-permanent basis. And all of this under a president who okayed the public release of a classified Republican memo that had serious inaccuracies while he blocked the release of a Democratic memo that had none. The nation's most important secrets are in the wind in Trump world. But Hillary's emails, indeed. The White House had blamed the FBI and U.S. intelligence for dragging their feet on the security clearance process. But FBI Director Chris Wray contradicted the White House Tuesday when he told Congress under oath that the FBI finished its investigation of Rob Porter in July after first reporting its findings to the White House in March of last year. After that final report in July, Ray says the White House asked the FBI to do some follow-up, which it did, and then handed the results of that to the White House as an addendum in July. And then in January of this year, Ray says the Bureau closed its file on Porter, determining Porter was not and never would be eligible for security clearance, considering his police record. Earlier this month, the FBI picked up even more information on Porter and passed that along as well. The White House says it first learned of Porter's apparent guilt of spousal abuse last Tuesday and that it had only known about the allegations for a few months. Trump's FBI director says the White House did know in January of last year and that the White House was told the truth about Rob Porter on four separate occasions. And up until last Tuesday, the White House was planning to promote him. The White House handling of the Rob Porter mess is now the subject of a congressional investigation. The House Oversight Committee is now investigating Porter's time at the White House without clearance from the arrival of John Kelly right up to Porter's exit and why he was kept on. It is no consolation, but some of the security sloppiness in the Trump administration is accidental or at least the result of incompetence or inexperience or all of those. That also appears to start at the top. We have a president who almost never reads the PDB, the President's Daily Brief. It's a document delivered to presidents every morning, as it has been for decades, to prepare that president for his day of leadership and decision-making. It's the latest classified intelligence from hotspots around the globe, satellite photos, wiretappings, and what our spies are hearing. Trump doesn't read his PDB. He prefers someone just tell him what's in it, more or less. Three people who would know this to be true have told it to the Washington Post. The fancy notebook that contains the briefing is, quoting one of the sources, not his style of learning. Trump is famous for, among other things, his short attention span, his dislike for reading, so the people who bring him his briefing also bring lots of videos, photos, and simple graphics. And he likes a briefing he can talk back to. He doesn't like the sense of being talked down to. Some days, sources say Trump talks so much, the briefers run out of time and are ushered out before they can tell him some of the important stuff. Quoting one intelligence official, he often goes off on tangents. But sources also say Trump considers watching Fox News Channel a crucial part of his briefing. He thinks an official briefing every day is too many, so Trump prefers his to be two or three a week while he watches Fox News every day. Intelligence experts say this is dangerous, that Trump would be unable to respond to certain crises based on his limited information. Not paying close attention to his daily briefing is how President George W. Bush missed advance warnings about what would be the 9-11 attack. This from the campaign so concerned about the fate of U.S. security 
under Hillary Clinton. That campaign is now a presidency that's disregarding a foreign attack while itself attacks the FBI, the Justice Department, and now also the State Department, the institutions that protect us from harm, foreign and domestic. The agencies there to protect us from an attack of any kind by a foreign government like Russia attacking our election process, the other serious problem faced by our Democratic Republic. With the support of Republicans in Congress, Trump has continued his attack on the FBI that's investigated him and his people as it follows the Russian effort. Trump had approved the release of a memo written by Republicans claiming the FBI targeted Trump and abused its authority in the process out of political bias. The FBI was barely given a chance to see the memo before it was released to the public, seeing it just long enough to spot important inaccuracies that led to incorrect conclusions. But Trump quickly approved the memo's release following the lead of the Republican majority on the House Intelligence Committee. That committee later okayed the release of a Democratic counter-memo, which had been more thoroughly screened, the FBI finding no inaccuracies in that one. But that's the memo Trump decided not to release, at least not now. Trump had just finished claiming the Republican memo had vindicated him, which it had not. He also claimed, after seeing this on Fox News, that he's been victimized by the FBI, the Justice Department, and the State Department. The first memo also tries to make a case for firing Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. The Democratic memo is likely to be more damaging to Trump. The FBI found no inaccuracies there, but that memo is still on hold. Trump says that even though the Democrats' memo has already been screened and redacted, it contains too much information that could compromise investigative methods and sources. So now it's gone back to the Republicans running the House Intelligence Committee for some more redacting. Democrats are now meeting with the FBI to keep an eye on what's being cut and why. Any legitimate concerns over sources and methods, we will redact, says the committee's top Democrat, Adam Schiff. One way or another, the Democratic response to the Republican memo is expected to be released and soon. The White House says the president has not read the Democratic memo he thought was too risky to release because it's so lengthy, being 10 pages and all. He may have had it explained to him, like the daily briefing. Meanwhile, another one bites the dust at the Justice Department. Rachel Brand announced she's leaving her job as the third in charge at Justice after just nine months on the job. She found a higher-paying job at Walmart just when the nation may need her the most. Being third in line behind the Attorney General, Rachel Brand was the person who would become the Deputy AG if Rod Rosenstein gets fired. It's Rosenstein who oversees and endorses the work of Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Trump has reportedly asked about firing each of them, Rosenstein and Mueller. With Rosenstein gone, Rachel Brand would have been the one to keep or fire Mueller. Rather than stay and have to refuse the president's order to fire Rosenstein and probably also be fired herself, Brand is moving to a big private sector company. Trump has already fired one deputy attorney general, FBI director, and scores of federal prosecutors, including those who had already been investigating him. Now a second deputy attorney general will soon be gone as well. Trump can now replace her with a person of his choosing, provided the Republican-controlled Senate goes along. And they probably will. The debacle uncovered by Rob Porter, the odds of a blue wave, blue apron for the poor, and the sky turns stormy for Trump after this. 
Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very important to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. If your Amazon dollars already go to some other show, you can support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just below the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. The revolving door at the White House continues to spin. More than a third of the White House staff has turned over since Trump took office, more than five times as much as either of the Bushes, twice that of Reagan's, and four times more than Obama's. A candidate who'd promised the best people has been unable to hang on to a record-setting number of them. Mike Flynn, Sean Spicer, Anthony Scaramucci, Reince Priebus, and all the rest, part of a 34% turnover rate. Lately, the jobs of even more top advisors, Chief of Staff John Kelly and Communications Director Hope Hicks and maybe White House lawyer Don McGahn have appeared to hang in the balance. The most recent high-profile departure is that of Deputy Chief of Staff Jim Carroll, who's off to become the nation's drug czar, exiting almost as quietly as he'd arrived just three months ago. And just before him, it was accused wife-beater and Staff Secretary Rob Porter, the guy with no security clearance, who handed the nation's most sensitive secrets to a president who doesn't read much. Rob Porter was key among those writing Trump's first State of the Union speech and flew frequently with Trump on Air Force One. Not only did the White House honor and keep Rob Porter, he was up for a promotion, possibly deputy chief of staff, when his ex-wife's black eye picture went viral. Porter's profile became more public when his two ex-wives gave interviews accusing him of physical abuse. One had that photo of her black eye. And both exes not only had similar stories, there were police reports and a subsequent girlfriend to back up those ex-wives' stories. It was that girlfriend who works at the White House who sounded the alarm after Porter started dating Trump advisor and former model Hope Hicks. And it was Hicks who helped craft the White House's initial response to the Porter allegations. She helped write John Kelly's remarks, as well as dismissive answers from Press Secretary Sarah Sanders. Porter was suddenly as infamous as he had been important. At first, Porter was fiercely defended by Chief of Staff John Kelly, who called Porter a man of true integrity and honor, adding, I can't say enough good things about him. Kelly urged Porter to stick around. But then the black eye photo dropped and Porter was fired. And Kelly had suddenly lost the confidence of the White House staff and anyone else who didn't appreciate his support for an accused wife-beater. Friday morning, Kelly told senior staffers to back his story that he'd started removing Porter within 40 minutes of corroboration of the abuse claims. The staff was shocked even more to learn that Kelly wanted them to spread and support his lie. Staffers have lost respect for Kelly, weakening his command as the White House organizer. One of his subordinates calls Kelly a big fat liar. Another staffer says the organization of the White House is coming apart at the seams. The infighting of the early days has reportedly returned to the Trump White House. Trump himself, meanwhile, was a step behind all of this, telling reporters he wished Porter well in his future endeavors. He, as you probably know, says he's innocent, said Trump. For the longest time, Trump said nothing about the scourge of spousal abuse and nothing to support its victims and survivors. Yesterday, like a kid being forced to apologize, he said, and I quote, I am totally opposed to domestic violence of any kind. Everyone knows that, and it almost wouldn't even have to be said, end quote. But it did have to be said. General Kelly had condemned domestic violence earlier, even as he claimed to be, quote, shocked by the new allegations. 
But Kelly wasn't shocked, and the allegations were not new. The White House has known about Rob Porter's wild fists as far back as September. The Trump administration was told of Rob's abuse in September of last year, nearly six months ago. The FBI told the White House about it, explaining why Porter hadn't gotten his security clearance. White House lawyer Don McGahn knew about it a year ago, before Porter even got the job. After being caught in the lie of what he knew when about Porter, Chief of Staff John Kelly floated the idea of quitting. Trump rejected it, saying he still has faith in Kelly, even after reports Trump was furious at his chief of staff, and even after Trump mused publicly about possible replacements for Kelly. Mused about replacements by name. Trump doesn't like it when his people bring trouble. Kelly had been caught in another big lie about what he knew and when about Rob Porter. Hope Hicks had been caught helping to craft the White House lies, defending her boyfriend and co-worker, Rob Porter. And Trump didn't know that his secretary was dating his communications director. This was also not Kelly's first big public lie. The first one was about the comments of a black lawmaker at a ceremony they had both attended. Video proved Kelly was lying, just as the unfolding of Porter's past would prove he was lying about that too. The Porter mess had occupied the Trump administration for at least four days, while no attention was paid to the national security side of this. Dozens of uncleared staffers handling top government secrets, scores of them. Meanwhile, the finger-pointing continues at the White House over the Porter controversy. The jobs of John Kelly and Hope Hicks may still be on the line. Two days after Rob Porter's departure, a White House speechwriter resigned after his ex-wife accused him of domestic violence. Like Porter, David Sorensen denies the accusation and says, in fact, he was the victim. But Sorensen said he was leaving to spare the president any more grief. Sorensen's job, by the way, did not require security clearance. Still, that revolving door is going to need oil. Trump may have enjoyed a recent bump in the polls after the State of the Union that Rob Porter helped him write, but it may cost Trump clout in Congress because it could hurt the re-election chances of the Congress that enables him. Trump's handling of the Porter mess included a tweet, quote, that people's lives are being shattered and destroyed by a mere allegation. Trump said that even after the photo of Porter's injured ex-wife came out. Saying nothing about the women who've been injured, Trump tweeted, There's no recovery for someone falsely accused. Life and career are gone. Mr. Porter, he said, is having a tough time and is very sad. Trump has a history of believing men over women, especially when it comes to sexual abuse. Before Rob Porter, it was Roy Moore. And before him, Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes. Trump defended former campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, who'd grabbed a reporter's arm, leaving her with bruises. And Trump has, of course, defended himself against the multiple sexual abuse allegations about him. The Me Too movement has taken notice of all of this, especially after the Porter case. And Democratic women are now motivated to rally even harder for a blue wave through Congress this fall. Even more women than the record number we've already seen running for office, campaigning for someone else, anyone but the Republicans who've stood by this Trump. Even Steve Bannon sees it coming. This is real, he says. Republican candidates plan to hit the campaign trail this summer to point to the economic growth and the tax cuts. They will be met, however, by voters with questions about the conduct of this president, questions and protests. Republican candidates are being advised not to engage in conversations about Trump or Russia, a rule they all wish Trump himself would obey. 
quoting the head of a Republican super PAC, if you find yourself talking about anything but the middle class tax cut, stop talking. You may be on to something. With the Obama presidency more than a year in the rear view, the polls show more Americans are starting to credit Trump for this economy, especially after a jobs report a few days ago showing the lowest number of unemployment claims in 45 years. But so long as even Fox News is focused on the Russia investigation, that will also be on the voters' minds. Democrats plan to focus on what the tax cut isn't and to keep the conversation going on Russia and the behavior of Donald Trump. The ripples we've been seeing in special elections across the country this year have been blue ripples. And together, they may just make a big blue wave, perhaps one strong enough to overcome Russian interference and Republican gerrymandering and voter suppression. Democrats in state-level races have already flipped three dozen districts from red to blue. If it can happen in Sarasota, Florida, it can happen in your district. Sarasota is Republican territory, usually. Republican voters there outnumber Democrats by about 13,000. That district went for Trump in the 2016 election, but on Tuesday of this week... It went for a Democratic woman who not only flipped the district to blue, but came from behind to beat the favorite who had a much bigger name in Sarasota. And she did it by running against that Republican support of Donald Trump. And she beat him by a seven-point margin. And in so doing, Margaret Good became the 36th Democrat to flip a district since the day Trump took office. In Pennsylvania, where a court has ordered the redrawing of that state's gerrymandered map of voting districts, today is the deadline for the Republicans who control the state house to draw a new map that's more fair. The one they'd submitted to the state's Democratic governor ahead of the last deadline has now been rejected by the governor. He's telling the state Supreme Court, which ordered the redrawing, Republicans haven't done nearly enough to carry out the court's order. Pennsylvania Republicans have now challenged their Democratic governor to draw his own darned map. Stay tuned. I know it seems longer, but it's been less than a week since the U.S. government shut down for the second time in three weeks. And it's worth remembering because of how it was reopened and what that means. A majority of both Democrats and Republicans voted for the $400 billion funding package that will keep the government open through March 22nd. The bill also removed the limits on government spending and suspended the nation's debt limit for the rest of the year. We'll get back to what the bill does and doesn't do with government spending, but take note of what happened here. A Republican president and both Republican-controlled houses of Congress have voted to increase spending, even domestic spending. They ripped the cap off government spending and sidelined the debt limit despite their pledges not to do so and despite their obstructing such a move under Democratic leadership. The most conservative Republicans did stick to their pledges voting against the spending bill. In fact, it was ultra-conservative Rand Paul who forced this latest shutdown by pushing debate beyond the shutdown deadline. There in the House, nearly as many Republicans as Democrats voted against that spending bill. Democrats who voted no were outraged the bill didn't include a solution to the Dreamer problem created by a Trump executive order. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi stood in high heels for nearly eight hours holding up the vote taking in only water as she argued for a vote on Dreamers. More about that still ahead. Pelosi's was the longest speech in House history, and House Speaker Paul Ryan agreed to have that vote later. Few Democrats believe Ryan will keep to that commitment. But Democrats did get increases in domestic spending, just as Trump and Republicans got increases in military spending in nearly equal amounts. And the government will now for a while stop lurching from shutdown to shutdown. 
But the majority of Republicans were suddenly, and contrary to recent history, open to spending money, and a lot of it. And then Trump asked them for even more. He sent Congress a budget proposal this week that would have them abandon their longtime dedication to that balanced budget. The self-proclaimed king of debt sent lawmakers a 10-year budget of just under $4.5 trillion. It's a plan that would add nearly $7 trillion to the federal debt. Trump's proposal has no chance of being approved as it's written, but it is his wish list, cutting nearly $2 trillion from Medicaid, Medicare, and food stamps, and cutting the EPA budget by more than a third, while spending nearly $200 billion more on the military and nearly $50 billion more on border security. The missing food stamps would be replaced by boxes of canned foods in what Trump budget director Mick Mulvaney called a blue apron-type program. Unless the cans contain creamy fusilli bucati pasta with fried rosemary and walnuts, the two can hardly be compared. Will diabetics be getting the same foods as everyone else? How will they be delivered? The idea poses more questions than it answers. Trump signed off on last week's increase in domestic spending only because he had already planned to take it away, and then some, in his budget proposal. Quoting Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, after slashing taxes on the wealthy and corporations, creating a huge deficit, the president asked older Americans and middle-class Americans to make up the difference by slashing Medicare and Medicaid. Both Republicans and Democrats in Congress see a lot they don't like in the Trump budget plan, including his plans to make more drastic cuts at the State Department, his enemies. And House Speaker Paul Ryan is now looking at a budget that does the opposite of what Ryan has fought for for years, driving up the debt and pushing the federal budget even farther out of balance. Ryan and other Republicans have waited for a moment like this, a moment when a Republican president and a Republican Congress could balance the budget and wipe out the federal debt. Well, their moment has finally arrived, but with a president who wants to go the other way. The pride and joy of Trump's budget plan is aimed at fixing our crumbling roads and bridges. It's a grand-sounding plan to spend $1.5 trillion on infrastructure. But the federal government would cover only $200 billion of that, leaving the rest to cities, counties, and states who would have to share in half of that $200 billion price tag. Both Republicans and Democrats know that $100 billion wouldn't be enough incentive for those smaller governments to start rebuilding. And Trump's infrastructure plans do nothing to keep the money coming to keep the construction continuing. To get the most bang for his buck, Trump wants to strip away government regulations he believes impede progress, especially environmental regulations. Critics say Trump is using our desperate need to fix our infrastructure to gut the rules on environmental protection. If you think Wisconsin, Minnesota, and New England have potholes now, just wait, says a civil engineering professor. Quoting the University of Colorado's Paul Chanowski, say you're going to build a new road in Denver that's designed to last for 25 years. Over the next 25 years, the climate in Denver is going to look more like the climate in Albuquerque. So, he says Denver needs to build roads that will hold up to heat like Albuquerque's if we expect it to last 25 years. The EPA has warned that our bridges are crumbling faster now because of climate change and that the crumbling will only increase as man's contribution to climate change remains unaddressed. That's even from the Trump EPA, see above story about Trump's plan to cut EPA funding. Trump remains committed to fossil fuels that accelerate climate change while making life harder for the Americans trying to move us into solar energy. 
A new 30% Trump tariff on imported solar panels has already destroyed jobs without creating any. Americans specialize in installing solar panels because we cannot build them as cheaply as foreign companies can. And by making the solar panels 30% more expensive, Trump has forced installation companies in the U.S. to lay off their workers, while the manufacturing jobs he promised are not materializing. Which, of course, is a bit more security for the gas, oil, and coal industries. But a little less security for the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the overall health of the planet. The commander-in-chief instructed the armies, he commands, to prepare a grand parade, and the Pentagon says it's working on it. But if Democrats and reasonable Republicans take action, there may be no damned parade. Democrats in both the House and Senate have introduced bills that prevent federal money from being used to cover the multi-million dollar cost of showing off America's military might. Trump's always wanted a show of force parade, and although he's likened his to French Bastille Day, what he's requested will look more like something you'd see in Russia only bigger. We have the best armed forces in the world, says Maryland Senator Ben Cardin, adding, we don't need to flex our muscles to showcase our military hardware. Our brave military men and women flex their might around the world every day, he says. The bills introduced would ban federal dollars for any parade big enough to be considered a show of strength. President Eisenhower rejected recommendations. He staged such a parade. Eisenhower said in the case of the U.S., it would be a show of weakness. The name of the House bill, by the way, is the Parade Act. That stands for Preventing Allocation of Resources for Absurd Defense Expenditures. The Wall Street Journal was the first outlet to report that $130,000 had been transferred from the bank account of an LLC to the account of the lawyer for a porn star, and that the transfer was arranged by longtime Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. It appeared to be a hush money. It appeared to be hush money, money to buy the porn star's silence about the affair she once claimed she'd had with Trump while married to Melania, just after the now first lady gave birth to a son. But questions remained about the ultimate source of the money and whether whoever paid it might have violated campaign donation laws. Michael Cohen has been the president's personal lawyer for many years. Again, he arranged that transfer just before the 2016 election, but yesterday he declared that the 130000 paid to busty porn star Stormy Daniels had come out of his own pocket. And believing it clears him of any wrongdoing, Cohen also proclaimed he was not reimbursed for that payment, at least not by the Trump campaign or the Republican Party. It is beyond unusual that a lawyer would, from their own pocket, pay any kind of settlement fee for their client. Unusual and mysterious. There's a reason Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, has a lawyer of his own. Any money spent to help a political candidate, even if it's to help shield them from harm, is a donation and must be reported and must be limited in its amount. Anything outside of that is a violation of the Federal Election Commission laws, provided the FEC still has any teeth under the Trump administration. The commission is in shambles, with barely enough members to be able to vote on anything, and without a full panel, it's completely powerless to take action on the Cohen mess or anything else unless the vote is unanimous, which is unlikely since the panel is deeply divided politically. The latest Republican appointed to the FEC has now quit. He starts his new job at a private law firm tomorrow. Another commissioner, the independent on the panel, says he's thinking of quitting, leaving just two Democrats, two Republicans, 
and not enough members to even take a vote, much less one that's unanimous. Still, the FEC is reportedly investigating Cohen's unusual generosity after a complaint by the watchdog group Common Cause. Congress won't likely investigate because it's controlled by Republicans. Cohen says the 130000 he paid to Stormy Daniels, widely considered to be hush money, was not a campaign contribution. Stormy Daniels, real name Stephanie Clifford, says on this side of the payoff there was no affair with Trump. But in two interviews she gave prior to the payoff, she discussed it at length. Trump attorney Michael Cohen denies it was hush money, but won't say why it was paid and won't say whether he discussed it with the now president of the United States. But by making that statement, Cohen might have just let Stormy Daniels out of the non-disclosure agreement she signed in exchange for that 130000 Cohen may have just violated the agreement he paid for, rendering that agreement for her silence null and void. Stormy now feels more free to talk. Everything is off now, says her lawyer. And Stormy, she says, is going to tell her story. Stormy Daniels will be appearing at a strip club in Tampa this weekend. Donald Trump has not been consistent or clear about what he wants in a bill to fix the Dreamer program that he had shut down while cracking down on immigration, even legal immigration. A group of Republican senators believes it's clear now what Trump wants, and they've put it into a bill that spends $25 billion on border security while offering a path to citizenship for the nearly 2 million immigrants who were brought here as children. But the bill also limits the family members who can be brought into the country and shuts down immigration's diversity lottery. The bill is described as the only plan that can pass, and it's also been described as a bill that itself cannot pass. Monday, the Senate voted to debate and vote on that bill. Trump called this the last chance for dreamers. The dream program runs out a little over two weeks from today. In the meantime, a second court has now blocked Trump's executive order ending the DACA program. But again, the court did not order the Trump government to grant DACA request, and the court did not ban the government from revoking DACA status. Bottom line, it's still up to Congress to fix the Dreamer program. But this court ruling is important because it says Trump's claim that Obama's DACA order is unconstitutional is simply not true. This year's flu epidemic has now infected more people than the swine flu pandemic of 2009. This year is on track to be even worse than our record-setting year of 2015 when 148 children died and three-quarters of a million people went to hospitals. Some 65 children have died from this year's flu, and we may not have yet reached the worst of it. At least two children have died in Georgia, but overall 66 more deaths were reported last week just in that state. Health workers say it's not too late to get vaccinated since Americans sick with the flu are still pouring into hospitals and doctor's offices. And never too late to wash your hands frequently. In Texas, a second-grade teacher has died from the flu even after she got a prescription for the antiviral medication Tamiflu. Being a public school teacher, she felt she could not afford Tamiflu's $116 price tag. She is survived by her husband and two children and a very sad second-grade classroom. Speaking of medical coverage or lack thereof, the third biggest medical insurance company in the U.S. is now under investigation. California's insurance commissioner is looking to see if what it heard from a Southern California doctor is true throughout the country. A former medical director at Aetna, who decided what treatments would be covered and which would not, has admitted under oath he never looked at a patient's records when making that decision. 
He relied on the recommendations of Aetna nurses and rarely asked the nurses questions about their recommendations. The doctor said that's how Aetna trained him to do the job. A top doc in Philadelphia says he's flabbergasted. Quoting one leading doctor at a university in Virginia, this is potentially a huge story and may reshape how insurance functions. A doctor specializing in medical ethics in New York calls Aetna's process of approving and denying claims, quote, a huge admission of fundamental immorality. Aetna says it looks forward to explaining how its process works. It could have been worse. Nearly 12 million people are on board with coverage under the Affordable Care Act this year, but that's down nearly 4% from last year. That year has made a difference with Trump and Republicans hammering away at the ACA, claiming that it was imploding and giving it a shove when it didn't on its own. In the meantime, Trump cut funding for advertising, the ACA sign-up dates, and its benefits. In the states that use the federal website, enrollments were down more than 5%. But in New York, California, and Colorado, enrollments were up slightly in the face of all of this. If only by a fraction of a percent, they were up, partly because those states kept advertising their government marketplace. Meanwhile, 13 million Americans remain covered by Obamacare, albeit at higher prices, under the Trump Republican government. When your tech and your money collide, here's worm in your eye and waking up British in the third and final segment up next. Listening is the new reading. And Audible.com is your best online audio bookstore with the biggest selection of digital audiobooks. Bestsellers like Fire and Fury, Big Little Lies, Hidden Figures, and Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. You don't even need an internet connection to listen, so you can listen anywhere. There are no interruptions. Audible books are ad-free, and you won't lose your place even if you switch devices. There's no equipment to buy. Just download the free app. Because Audible.com is an Amazon company, you can count on privacy, security, and satisfaction. You can sign on securely with your Amazon account. And if you don't like a book, you can exchange it for another, free. And as a member, you'll get a credit each month for a free book, any book, regardless of price and exclusive to members' discounts of 30%. Membership is just $14.95 a month, a library for about what you'd pay for a book. And you can cancel anytime and keep your books. Even if you shop Amazon elsewhere, this podcast gets a small commission if you join Audible through the link at buzzburbank.com. Just click the Audible link on my webpage just below the list of my recent shows. Thanks for choosing Audible through me and for supporting this free news through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. As it turns out, the hacking of personal data on more than 145 million customers was even worse than we were first told by the target of the hacking, Equifax now the country's most hated corporation. Sloppy security at the credit rating company allowed cyber thieves to get tax ID numbers, email addresses, and more from hundreds of millions of people in the U.S. and Canada. Now the Senate Banking Committee has documents that tell it a lot more than Equifax had reported. They showed that the hackers got driver's license info, including the license number, the state, and the date of issue. Thieves can now buy all this information from hackers and use it to open bank accounts, get loans, credit cards, home mortgages, and file before you do for your federal income tax refund. Hackers found the holes in Equifax security, but sometimes the target makes the hackers work so much easier. A secret Apple programming code was leaked online this past week 
posted on GitHub, a website where software developers share new codes. Apple asked GitHub to take down their copyrighted code, and GitHub complied. But by then, the code was out there. The code that powers up your phone, your iPhone if you have one. A code that could make it easier for hackers to find their way into your phone. A guy who's written a book about Apple's operating system calls it the biggest leak in history. It's a huge deal, he said. It's not known who leaked the code or how or why. Rest assured, Apple is investigating. Harley-Davidson is recalling nearly a quarter million motorcycles from around the world because of a possible problem with the brakes. Deposits can form on a module in Harley's anti-lock brake system, causing them to corrode and fail without warning, especially if the brake fluid isn't replaced at least every two years. Harley dealers started taking in the bikes for upgrading on Monday. If you put solar panels atop 50,000 homes and wired them together, each with their own battery backup, those homeowners would then have their very own virtual power plant. That's the idea behind Tesla's latest work in Australia. Thousands of people have already signed up for what they're told is free installation, which will be paid for by latecomers to the network. For all, it means electricity for nearly a third its usual price and without generating pollution. Tesla CEO Elon Musk, whose Roadster convertible is still making its way to Mars, designed the Australian solar grid after designing the world's biggest lithium-ion battery that's been powering the state of South Australia since last December. It's a battery backup for the entire state in case the usual power gets drained during a hot summer or in case it just goes offline. This year's Winter Olympics is tarnished by the scene-stealing of North Korea, by accusations of sexual harassment from a U.S. gold medal snowboarder, and by the shocking misconduct of former U.S. Olympic Dr. Larry Nasser. Gold medal gymnast Ali Raisman says a former Olympic team coach may have known about Larry Nasser's twisted exams at least seven years ago. Coach's name is John Gettert. Quoting Raisman, one of my teammates described in graphic detail what Nasser had done to her the night before. Gettert was in the car with the girls at the time, and quoting Raisman, he just didn't say anything. She goes on. I don't know what he did or didn't do from there. I know he didn't ask us any questions. But, says Raisman, this is just why we need the full independent investigation to get to the bottom of who knew about this. And Raisman says she worries that abuse and cover-ups will continue if the U.S. Olympic Committee doesn't launch that independent investigation and then release the findings to the public. NBC, which carries the Olympics for big profit, has barely mentioned the scandals. Harvey Weinstein, meanwhile, is being sued by the New York State Attorney General's office. In that suit, the exiled Hollywood mogul is accused of creating a hostile work environment at his film company, repeatedly sexual harassing, intimidating, and demeaning female employees. The suit says Weinstein workers were required to facilitate and witness his sex life and that their jobs depended on it. The lawsuit's significant because it throws a serious wrench into the plans of the board of the Weinstein Company to sell that company to an interested buyer for a half billion dollars, and there is or was an interested buyer. Because of the lawsuit, the Weinstein Company will now more likely go into bankruptcy. The New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman says any money from the sale of that company should go to the victims, not to the enablers of Harvey Weinstein. Perhaps the biggest mistake in Vic Damone's career was turning down a part in the movie The Godfather. But the singer who also did a little acting had done pretty well without that role. 
As a teenager, Vic Damone boldly auditioned for Perry Como when he appeared at the Paramount Theater in Manhattan, where Damone worked. Como put Damone in touch with a band leader, and then Damone met Frank Sinatra. Quoting Damone, without Frank, there never would have been a Vic Damone. As it turned out, there was a Vic Damone, documented in about 2,500 songs, recorded over more than 50 years, and for years he was a mainstay on the Vegas Strip. The crooner was less successful at marriage, having tried it five times. Vic Damone passed this week in Florida at the age of 89. First, the phone chargers arrived, and then the phone cases. Then some plastic fans arrived at the door, and then a humidifier attachment for water bottles. And the Gallivan family of Acton, Massachusetts, hadn't ordered any of it. They weren't being billed for it, so that's good, but they were accumulating things they hadn't ordered and didn't need. The outdoor TV cover was kind of a breaking point for Mike and Kelly Gallivan. Quoting Kelly, we have no outdoor TV. They started Googling to find out if anyone else was getting stuff they hadn't ordered or paid for. There were others, indeed, quite a few. Amazon has now confirmed that some of its sellers, to try to get a better listing, send free stuff to real Amazon customers and then use that customer's verified account to write a stellar review for their plastic fans and outdoor TV covers or whatever. Amazon says when it finds such shenanigans, it removes the seller. Back in Acton, Mass., meanwhile, the Gallivans have started giving stuff to charity, quoting Michael, we just don't want anymore. The former Miss Black Austin, Texas, has never been out of the country. But one day, she woke up British. The former beauty queen, who now lives in Buckeye, Arizona, has also awakened in the past with other accents, including Irish and Australian. It happens on waking, especially after a bad headache, and lasts for about a week, usually. She isn't faking and she isn't crazy. She's been examined by psychiatrists as well as physicians. Doctors say this is a thing. Michelle Myers has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which, among other things, includes bursting blood vessels and severe headaches. And she has a rare condition known as Foreign Accent Syndrome, according to doctors. Myers was taken to a hospital three years ago when her right eye went temporarily blind and the left side of her body was temporarily paralyzed. But this time, the accent, this British accent, didn't go away. This African-American beauty queen from Texas who now lives in Arizona, has never been out of the country, has been sounding British for the past three years now. She says her children's names come out of her mouth differently now and that she doesn't like it. And she says she doesn't care if it's in her body or in her head, that all she really wants to know is, can anything be done to fix it? In Oregon, a 26-year-old woman had a left eye that felt irritated as if there was something in her eye, like an eyelash but no lash ever washed out and the irritation stretched into days. After about a week, using a mirror and her fingers, she got hold of the thing and pulled it out. And it wasn't an eyelash or a hair. It was a small worm, just under a half inch long. And it still felt as if there was something in her eye. So she decided it was time to see a doctor. He pulled out two more. The doctor then sent her to an optometrist who removed three more worms. They're eye worms, carried by flies, mostly just cows. There are only 11 recorded cases in humans in the U.S. This was the first case in 20 years. These worms don't do any damage, but they live under your eyelids, feeding on your tears, and they're irritating. The young woman had spent time horseback riding through cattle country, and her nightmare wasn't over. The worms kept coming. 
Over a period of three weeks, doctors removed a total of 14 eye worms from this woman. Quoting a parasitic disease expert, they weren't able to remove them all at once. They had to remove them as they came present and visible. Quoting the head of the Parasitology Reference Diagnostic Lab at the Centers for Disease Control, it's just really gross and psychologically disturbing. Doctors say the best way to prevent eyeworm infection is to wear a hat with a net. Science marches on. Get out of the way, shouted 28-year-old Joe Cooper as his 2003 Beamer sped down I-95 on the east coast of Florida. From the home office comes a call to 911 in which Cooper reports, I think my gas pedal is stuck on my car. The 911 operator asked if he'd tried the emergency brake. Ma'am, he said, I'm not going to do that at 100 miles an hour. I'm sorry. He tried putting the car in neutral to try to free the pedal. That didn't work. So it was up to the Florida Highway Patrol and some cops from Felsmere to clear the traffic and put down spikes to deflate the BMW's tires. That slowed the car enough for police to stop it using what's known as the PIT, or PIT, maneuver for pursuit intervention technique. That's fancy police talk for they used their cars to force the Beamer driver to make a sharp, sudden turn. Amazingly, no immediate serious injuries were reported, although an adrenaline-filled Joe Cooper agreed to go to the hospital to check his understandable chest pains. Being a chocolate taster isn't as easy as you might think. The Cadbury Company in Britain, the fairly new owners of Oreo cookies, is looking for chocolate tasters. It's probably best it's only a part-time job that pays $12.50 an hour. But the applicants are expected to have the right taste buds for flavor detection and a passion for sweets. No experience necessary, but new hires will undergo intense training in taste bud development and in learning the right vocabulary to describe what they detect. They'll work in dedicated sensory booths and then meet with 11 other tasters to discuss their findings until they reach agreement. Kind of like a jury. A hungry jury. I'll begin this story by quoting directly from Missouri's Springfield News Leader newspaper. Callie Schenker, 22, was greeted with an unusual sight when she pulled into her driveway Thursday night. Her neighbor's corgi was sitting on top of her one-eyed pony, Cricket. Schenker started laughing, whipped out her phone, and pressed record. I'll take the story from here. The horse then began walking away from its fence, and the dog stayed on, looking back toward that cell phone as he was carried into the dark of night. The woman who owns the horse posted it online, not realizing that more than just her social media friends would see it. So the video went viral about the horseback riding dog. The dog's owners, Mennonites who don't use the Internet, will never truly know how famous their dog is. The horse owner who shot the video says, I'm really glad everyone got a good laugh out of it. I'm glad, she said, it's something happy this time, instead of something sad in the news. We're all glad for that, Callie. So thank you. And finally, Duncan Robb woke up British because he is living in Chesterfield, England. Just before Christmas, Duncan was online looking for tickets to boxing when something about the Red Hot Chili Peppers caught his eye. February 10th, Valentine's Day weekend, at an arena in nearby Belfast, Northern Ireland. So Duncan and his girlfriend were both very excited about seeing the Chili's, and the big weekend finally came. It was just after touchdown in Belfast that they looked more closely at the tickets. Pipers. The performers would be the Red Hot Chili Pipers, a cover band of bagpipes. Duncan says they're both just glad they found out before they got to the arena. I'm Buzz Burbank. 
Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at BuzzBurbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.